0: Good morning. Good morning. morning. Thank you, Susie. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. After a couple of week hiatus, I'm back. Um, November 30th, 2016, there's a large crowd still gathering, but we have a fair bit of business to conduct today in addition to our um, grand round speaker. So it is uh, the 30th tonight. I hope I'll see many of you in Auditorium G upstairs for our All Chad regional update meeting, uh, 5.30 to 7.30 with dinner at 5 o'clock. And hopefully again a large turnout next week and we will have breakfast starting a little bit early. So those who want to uh, gather with doctors Little, Dr. George Little, and Dr. Bill Edwards to celebrate their careers in neonatology, to kick off grand rounds, and then a symposium, a a day-long symposium. There's also a reception in the afternoon, I believe, in, is it Fuller? In Fuller reception uh, as well in the afternoon with some goodies. So big big doings before we get into the uh, winter holiday breaks, we'll have Matt Hood, and Frank McDougal Dougal on the fourteenth to uh, discuss the post-election landscape and child health in that landscape. But today we celebrate um, the conclusion of the fundraising portion of the Chad Hero, the eleventh Chad Hero that was took place on October eighteenth or sixteenth, sixteenth. And we do have some awards. We've been we've been tracking these awards <clears throat> uh, since the since the event and subsequently. And we have our Chad Champions who we're going to give some prizes to today. Sharon Brown, our director of community relations and Communi- communications has our prizes. But the best winner of all, of course, are all of the kids and all of you who do the work with the kids. And um, the total this year is over 804,000 and counting. So we are at our highest. we are at our highest point ever. And that is thanks to the participation and contribution of, of many. So we have prizes for the individuals, team participation, and team prize. And this is going by itself. I was going to make, make it do but So the top individuals, <laughs> that's not what I wanted. So um, top individuals you saw, and this should not be running itself. Somehow the animation got a, got ahead of me. It's supposed to be one at a time. But you see Lou Gwill, Zach Newton, and, uh, and Tim Murphy. So Lou is not able to join us, but um, was sad to miss this as he, she's a regular um, winner. Zach Newton, come on down, Zach. We got a prize for you, Zach, as it's an intern. So in his first year with us, Zach was able to um, be our second prize winner. And our top winner, Timothy Murphy, works with and helps manage the float pool and um, is um, one of many folks who isn't. Specifically within Pediatrics or Chad, but all of us who contribute to child health at Dartmouth Hitchcock are Chad, so Timothy Murphy came in first, I think at fourteen hundred and sixty five dollars fourteen hundred and ninety five dollars so if you know Tim, give him a or Timothy, give him a, a a cheer in the top team size. we have prizes as well for those who are able to gather the largest teams and i don 't see her today, but I, if any of the you do? No, Sydney. So the, the, the house staff resident team came in third with 34 members, Chad champions. Sydney was the captain, but if any of if if any, if if the residents can pick up her prize and make sure you don't take home her um, syrup, or they can share that. Second place team was um, called Fast Asleep, which was an anesthesia team. <laughs> and they and they came in with 48 participants and their captain is Bethany Sharon who I believe is not with us as well and then the top team numbers wise was champions against child abuse which was captained by Kathy Brittis with 65 members <laughs> Thank you, you Cassie. Start
1: with her while she's down here. Yeah, she might as well no, stay <laughs> oh,
0: down. Oh. So, and then in terms of the, the, the Chad Challenge Cup, or the Champions Cup, what do we call the cup? The Dartmouth-Hitchcock Dynamos. The Dartmouth-Hitchcock Dynamos, the trophy. We have representation. Bethany Sharon's team, the, the anesthesia team, came in Third with seven seven thousand seven hundred ninety seven dollars so that was um again the anesthesia team with great thanks and then we had that neck and neck race as you all know between molly's place of heroes and i don't know if leslie is here today and the champions against child abuse and because because it was almost a statistical dead heat we actually put both names on the dynamo cup for Molly's Place Heroes and Champions Against Child Abuse, but we are we are granting the trophy to go on Kathy's desk to Kathy Britis for coming in with the top team this year. So um, clearly, thanks for everyone, because everyone ultimately was, um, was champions for this event. Um, so I'm sorry that we gave uh, Jay Leiter, Dr. Leiter, a little bit of shorter time. I have only been allowed to share that Dr. Leiter uh, graduated from Dartmouth College and Dartmouth Medical School, and he has otherwise requested to introduce himself. And given the um, distinguished career he has had here at Dartmouth, he has earned that privilege. So Jay,
1: <laughs> thanks for joining us. Great. <laughs> Thank you So the uh, main reason I want to introduce myself is that I've been here longer than almost everyone in the room except George Little and um, I know where all the bodies are <laughs> I Came as a medical student and it was a three-year program and as part of Hi, the program had we to, to set up a round. service line and in the first audiology summer, we had to do a basic science fifth, research project um,
0: I guess and it's And I Wednesday spent the summer the in the darkness in you. And NICU,
1: there's folks in King, and I don't know if the they're time, the right people or not, the other location is dark, so I didn't know if it was canceled. I can't seem to get a hold don't of the, be with whole of the time. I don't know if they have their <laughs> money. <mind. laughs> okay, okay. I thought I'd double check. Okay, so uh, just to name names, George was the attending, Virginia Black was a fellow, okay. Steve Carries was a second-year resident, Bill Edwards okay. was a first-year resident, yep. and Mrs. Yep. Dr. Edwards was an intern and I spent eight weeks there and every week I had to give a half-hour presentation on some physiological topic that was relevant to the newborns and it was fantastic it really was an extraordinary introduction to physiology and I'm eternally grateful for that opportunity and coming to Dartmouth Medical School was really a transforming experience for me because of the opportunities to understand physiology and then subsequently conduct research Um, so I am currently investigating uh, sudden infant death syndrome and I'm with a team of people and I'll mention them throughout Dartmouth has actually had a fairly prominent role in uh, SIDS research and public policy related to SIDS and I'll try to remember to mention that when I can okay my conflicts of interest the work I'm talking about is paid for by the NIH I also have a grant from the renal research institute which is the uh, research arm of Fresenius, but I don't have any financial relationship with Fresenius. I have a little drug company which has a drug for uh, neurodegenerative diseases and you know it's all the rage in Silicon Valley to say, oh we're really good at failing, we're failing, you gotta be prepared to fail. Failure sucks, okay? (laughs) That is just completely wrong. Failure is punished, but we are succeeding at failing. We we have we're on the cusp of having next, enough money to go to the next level, but we just can't seem to get that next tranche of funds that are necessary. So, um, uh, this has been fun but uh, frustrating. Then I consult for Maxis Medical. I design clinical trials for medical device companies in Europe. Uh, usually, after mentioning these commercial relationships, I feel that one ought to take a shower or something. But uh, in this case. Uh, Middlebury College and Williams College are extremely grateful to Maxis Medical, okay, because that's how I paid for my children's college. <laughs> okay, here's SIDS. This is the formal definition of SIDS: unexplained death in a baby younger than one year of age that doesn't have a known cause, even after a complete investigation. And the investigation is very thorough. That should be very thorough. But what constitutes a known cause is sometimes not so easy to decide, and I'll discuss that in a moment. So, in SIDS research, I think there have been three major eras, each of which I'll discuss. The first is epidemiology. This has been based on case control studies in human infants, and I think they are really the first champions of making a dent in the incidence of SIDS. There's been a pathological era that's based on autopsies of babies who died of SIDS compared to those who did not. Uh, And then the third area is physiology, which I think uh, is largely us and our collaborators, and um, I think that we're uh, moving forward here. So Dartmouth is part of an NIH grant to understand SIDS. uh, Our role has been to provide physiological plausible explanations for how the epidemiological and pathological findings associated with SIDS may actually contribute to the disease process. We were followers. I think, but I hope to show that we're now starting to take the lead and make suggestions for the pathologists and the epidemiologists to start to think about. So this is kind of a brief synopsis of the risk factors of SIDS. I'll point out some others. The list is not complete. This is taken from the NIH website. But babies who sleep on their backs, uh, who then place to sleep on their stomachs, have a very high risk of SIDS. Prone sleeping, soft surfaces in the bed, covers over the head, Uh, Babies who get too hot, thermal stress, which I'll talk about. Uh, Babies who are exposed to cigarette smoke in the womb or in the environment. So even after birth, cigarette smoking in the house is a risk factor. Uh, If they sleep in the adult bed with parents, this is a bad thing. Uh, If the adult smokes or drinks alcohol, it's worse. Baby gets covered. Same sort of risk factors. So this is the organizing principle that has guided our research. And I want to note prominently uh, a Dartmouth faculty member here, Jim Filiano, who was instrumental in putting this hypothesis together. When people looked at the risk factors, they sort of said, you know what? They looks like they fall into three categories. SIDS involves a critical development period. The peak incidence is two to five months. And kids seem to outgrow the risk of SIDS. And we'll talk about why that, why that might be. It seems to be a vulnerable incident. There's something about the babies that's different. And just being different isn't enough you have to be different at this age, and then there are exogenous stressors. The environment of sleep really seems to matter. And so uh, this combination all comes together, and uh, when all three factors are present or unusually uh, prevalent, prominent in a particular baby, then the risk of SIDS goes up dramatically. And and this has been an incredibly helpful conceptual framework for thinking about SIDS. So in terms of epidemiology, uh, there's a simple approach. If these are the risk factors for SIDS, then simply avoid these risk factors. So the current recommendations from the NIH and the American Academy of Pediatrics are that you should have a safe sleep environment. And this is a very spare, hard surface, no extra covers, keep things away from the baby that they can get caught up in. Seek prenatal care. It's very clear that nations that have excellent prenatal care have a very, very low incidence of SIDS. So Europeans, for example, are way ahead of us. Uh, Educate the mothers about proper sleep environment and care of the baby. Foster breastfeeding. This reduces the risk of SIDS and no maternal smoking or drinking. Uh, It's no fun. This is kind of the way of the physician, right? We tell people not to do things that they like, eat, drink, get more exercise, all those things. And this is more of that. Stop smoking. And here again, the Europeans tend to be a little bit better at this. Um, If you've ever been to the Netherlands, you know they all smoke. But during pregnancy, the mom stops smoking. And so they're, they're better behaved than we are in that respect. So this is the origin of the Back to Sleep campaign in the, in the U.S. And, of course, uh, John Brooks played a prominent role in this. And uh, John Brooks is a graduate of the medical school here. And uh, he took a year out to do research, just as I did. We're all protégés of March Denny. And so um, it, it's interesting that we've all been gravitated to this topic. Okay. This is from the map of London in the cholera epidemic in uh, the mid-19th century. Here's the broad steering pump, and all these little black dots are where all the cholera cases were. And John Snow correctly noted that they all seem to be surrounded around this pump handle on Broad Street. And he removed the pump handle, and the incidence of SIDS in the neighborhood dropped dramatically. And he's really the father of epidemiology for noticing this association between the risk of disease and geography in this pump. So there are some limits to causality in epidemiology. First is there was no knowledge of the germ theory at this time. The germ theory came out in the 1860s, and there were no pathogens identified in the water. And he looked, and he found nothing. So there's no clear understanding of what aspect of the disease was altered by removing the pump handle. And the same problem exists for SIDS. In terms of SIDS, we don't know what aspect of infantile physiology is altered by the interventions in the back-to-sleep campaign and the safe sleep environment. We can't refine them to particular infants or particular environments because we don't understand exactly how they're working. Nevertheless, it worked, maybe. Uh, And SIDS rates went down, maybe. Maybe. So I think Bob Darnell's probably presented this already. These are the uh, deaths per 100,000 live births uh, attributed to SIDS and attributed to uh, accidental suffocation and strangulation in bed. And you can see that the SIDS risk, which is here, went down. Here's the onset of the back to sleep campaign. But over time, the attribution of death to asphyxia went up. And since about 1996, the rate's been pretty stable. Okay, and the rate of back sleeping hasn't changed much since about 1996. It's kind of stuck at about 85% of babies are put to sleep on their back. So not much change in the aggregate sudden unexplained infant death rate. And there's been diagnostic drift. The apparent success of the back to sleep campaign is partly apparent and less real than meets the eye, at least in my view, because as I'll explain, these babies used to be categorized as SIDS and I think the same pathological process is present in them that's present in the babies who die of SIDS. So this is taken from an article by Rick Goldstein uh, and Hannah Kinney who have been champions of SIDS research and Hannah is in charge of our uh, program project grant and they're showing that in certain infants if they have a lot of defects such as brainstem dysfunction, exposure to chronic hypoxia, prematurity, maternal smoking, critical period of development. These are all part of the triple risk model, and I'll talk about what the brainstem dysfunction is in a moment. Um, And if they're in a sleep environment where there is uh, soft bedding and uh, things of this sort, then there's an increased risk of asphyxia. So the risk factors for asphyxia are the same as for SIDS, and babies who died of SIDS of asphyxial death have exactly the same serotonergic abnormalities. And I'll show you what those serotonergic abnormalities are, but they basically have a hyposerotonergic state. I think it's actually present throughout many regions of the brainstem and more rostrally, but the important parts are in the brainstem. And so these babies who are dying of asphyxia are not entirely normal. They have the same defects that I'll talk about of the babies who die of SIDS. Normal babies exposed to asphyxial stimuli roll around, move around, wake up, and resist that uh, that, uh, and resume normal breathing. So the asphyxial death is still due to the brainstem defect and additional risk factors. And is renaming the process really helpful? I actually don't think it is. I think it's confusing. I think that we need a more unified name for this. Uh, you know, as we move forward and we understand diseases uh, more effectively, we've gone from Down syndrome to trisomy 21. SIDS is really a descriptive term that doesn't have any mechanism inherent in it. I can suggest a name at the end, but it's going to be, you know, something about a hypoceratinergic state coupled with what I believe are uh, the other major risk factors. But we, we had to rename the syndrome so that we can diagnose like things in the like category. And I, I don't think this diagnostic group is actually very helpful. So the next problem, and, and I, I just love this, and this is Rick Goldstein's work as well. If you look at death rates uh, in the last few years, you see this dramatic reduction at the onset of the back-to-sleep campaign in the SIDS death. Accidental deaths haven't changed. But congenital abnormalities have been declining Diseases of the circulatory system have been declining, respiratory distress uh, in newborns has been declining, neonatal deaths have been declining in general, and so uh, in addition to prenatal, in addition, prenatal care has increased, and breastfeeding has increased in the same period, and the number of infants put to sleep supine plateaued some years ago, and the decline in SIDS diagnosis continued even after that rate was stabilized. So Goldstein et al. concluded that SIDS mortality followed trends in overall post-neonatal uh, mortality including uh, effects of changes in infant sleep environment and diagnostic classification. I'm going to translate this into slightly harsher language and my translation is the safe sleep environment back to sleep campaign have been hugely successful. There's no denying that and we ought to continue baby parents to put their babies to sleep on their back. However, the success of the back-to-sleep campaign can't be attributed to the back-to-sleepiness part of the back-to-sleep campaign, okay? It's attributable to the general decline in death rates. It's attributable to the increase in breastfeeding, improved prenatal care. Other factors have been going on in the background that do not allow you to attribute the particular improvements in SIDS-death to the major focus of the, of the campaign. So I conclude that, as I did about the... Uh, Cholera epidemic in London. That epidemiology is a blunt tool to dissect mechanisms of disease. Pump handles don't actually cause cholera, even though removing them put an end to the epidemic. So I want to turn to things that I think are more helpful, and that we're now entering the pathology era. And there's there have been two eras here. And Richard Ney in the 1960s and 70s noted astrocytosis in the brain and brain immaturity in infants who died of SIDS. And he attributed this and other pathological findings to persistent, uh, such as persistent hepatic erythrocytosis, adrenal medulla hyperplasia, and some other findings, to intrauterine hypoxia. And this idea of intrauterine hypoxia is a recurrent theme throughout Sid's research. That something's happening in utero that makes the baby hypoxic. The baby's really on the edge in terms of the adequacy of oxygen delivery. And so if oxygen delivery is inadequate, that delays development the baby doesn't have sufficient ATP to make the neurons form normally, to make all the proper connections, to myelinate the the neurons, whatever development processes are taking place, they're slowed and delayed when there's persistent hypoxia. And many people think that the risk of cigarette smoke, particularly prenatal cigarette smoke exposure in the mother, really works through uh, a decrease in intrauterine blood flow and a uh, decrease in oxygen delivery to the fetus. So prematurity or brain immaturity for gestational aim seems to be associated with SIDS, and I'm going to come back and emphasize this over and over again. I believe the persistence of more fetal reflex responses is a sign of this brain immaturity. If you think about the baby when they're exposed to hypoxia, they really have rather limited options. Uh, and they, um, they can't breathe more. They can't say, Mom, send me more blood flow. There's no way to communicate with a mother across the placenta. So they have a very conservative... Approach, uh, which is in the original sense of the word, which is to take whatever oxygen they have and make it last as long as possible. So, what does that involve? That involves suppressing metabolism, particularly in the brain, which is one has one of the higher oxygen consumption rates. So, babies' brains are partly anesthetized when they're in utero. There are high levels of allopregnanolone and adenosine that tend to decrease neuronal activity, decrease oxygen consumption. When they're threatened by hypoxia, they decrease the heart rate, redistribute blood flow to the vital organs, and really make that oxygen hang on as long as possible. And I think those reflexes are appropriate for the fetus. They're not appropriate when you're in an air-breathing environment. In an air-breathing environment, a more adult response is to say, gee, I don't like it here. Let's leave. I'm going to try to extract more oxygen from this oxygen-deficient environment by breathing more. OR LEAVING THE ENVIRONMENT OR HAVING SOME OTHER BEHAVIORAL RESPONSE THAT'S EFFECTIVE, BUT WE DON'T TURN INWARD AND JUST TRY TO HOLD OUR BREATH FOR A REALLY LONG TIME. THAT'S NOT AN APPROPRIATE ADULT RESPONSE.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: IT MAY BE APPEALING AT TIMES TO STICK YOUR HEAD LIKE THAT, <laughs> BUT it's, it's, IT'S NOT APPROPRIATE. OKAY? SO THE SECOND ERA OF PATHOLOGY REALLY uh, STARTS WITH HANNAH KINNEY'S LAB, AND SHE'S HAD A HUGE NUMBER OF INTERESTING FINDINGS, AND THEY'VE LARGELY BEEN CONFIRMED BY OTHERS WHO HAVE COME BEHIND. Uh, come after her. So babies who died of SIDS have a variety of neurotransmitter receptor defects. They have reduced muscarinic binding, reduced glutamate receptor binding, but the main thing is that they have reduced serotonin receptor binding in the brain stem. Reduced 5-HT1A, which I I would say 25 years ago one of my colleagues said, man, we're never studying serotonin. There are just too many receptors. It's too confusing. There are about 21 receptors. So all of us have now spent the last 20 years studying serotonin, so um, we, we did not dodge that bullet. But 5-HT1A receptors are one of the serotonin receptors, um, and they are deficient in the babies who died of SIDS compared to other babies who died of non-SIDS causes. In addition, there are increased numbers of immature serotonergic cells in the caudal serotonergic nuclei, and here again we have this idea of, ser- of immaturity of the brain, uh, and there are perhaps reduced tissues of uh, reduced tissue serotonin levels. So the serotonergic, and here's the important thing: the serotonergic findings also present in babies who died of asphyxia. So Hannah and her colleagues looked at babies who were given the diagnosis of asphyxia. Their brainstem abnormalities looked just like the babies who died of SIDS. I don't think the pathology underlying those two diagnoses is any different at all. So all of these receptor binding defects were particularly prominent in brainstem nuclei, involved in autonomic control, including the nucleus of the solitary tract. The NTS is my favorite nucleus, and it is the integrating site for all sorts of visceral information. So baroreceptor receptor information, vagal feedback, feedback from upper airway receptors, all gets integrated uh, in the nucleus tractus solitarius before it's then distributed to the effector regions of the brain uh, affecting uh, cardiac control and also respiration, which are largely in the ventral part of the medulla, whereas the NTS is in the dorsal part of the medulla. But a very prominent um, intersection of afferent information. So. I want to turn now to the physiology section, and I want to show you some recordings from babies who died of SIDS. These babies had home monitors, uh, and despite the presence of the home monitors, died of SIDS. And this is uh, work from Dottie Kelly, who many of you may know. Um, and the important thing is, here's respiration. Here's the heart rate. Here's the an apnea, where respiration becomes more irregular. And during the apnea, there's bradycardia. If you stimulate the carotid body in the absence of breathing. The cardiovascular response is bradycardia, whereas if you're breathing, it tends to be tachycardia. So if you guys go to high altitude, hypoxia is present, the carotid body is stimulated, you're breathing, you'll have a tachycardia. But when you hold your breath and you're hypoxic, the, the heart rate goes down. Um, and then there are a few uh, intermittent episodes here. There's a prolonged apnea and marked bradycardia, and then there's a gasp here. And um, so I want you to note that the, the, the problem seems to begin with apnea, The apnea persists, bradycardia develops, and then gasping develops. And the way this ends successfully or happily is that um, here's another uh, apnea, and we're not shown the beginning of it, but here's a gasp. There's a slight increase in heart rate. If cardiovascular integrity is restored by the gasp and the improved oxygenation associated with that gasp, then the heart rate tends to rise here's another gasp then uh, it looks like the oxygenation is really improving significantly and the heart rate rises and then you see a restoration of breathing now these little bumps are actually the breaths there are a few big brunts uh, in, uh, in that as well so um, what you see is this gasping that originates after the primary apnea and it restores the heart rate first i believe and then normal breathing is restored which i'm going to call eupnea And this whole process is called autoresuscitation, and it's a mechanism for babies and even some adults when they have prolonged apneas to recover and restore normal breathing if they can. So apnea and bradycardia to start, but gasping and autoresuscitation to uh, prevent uh, death. And so the rest of the talk is going to focus on apnea and gasping and autoresuscitation. So our hypothesis is that the risk factors for SIDS really focus on two things. They enhance the likelihood of apnea and bradycardia, and they reduce the likelihood of successful autoresuscitation. And I'll show you data largely from animals that uh, is meant to uh, demonstrate this. So uh, this is my effort to put all this hypothesis together. I think they're apnogenic reflexes, hypoxia, the laryngeal chemoreflex, the diving reflex, perhaps airway obstruction. Lead to apnea and bradycardia. And in a fetus, this can be, in an infant with fetal like responses, this apnea and bradycardia can be quite profound. But you're meant to wake up. There's meant to be gasping, swallowing, airway clearance mechanisms. Eupnea is meant to be restored. You're meant to arouse um, and resume normal breathing, restore heart rate and blood pressure. If you don't do that, if the apnea persists and gasping or auto resuscitation are ineffective, then there's cardiovascular collapse, shock, and ultimately death. I think that in babies who are at risk for SIDS, there's increased inhibition, there's neurotransmitter activity associated with inhibition that's increased, and there's increased apnea uh, intensity. Babies who are meant to recover, who do not recover well, have reduced excitatory inputs, especially serotonin, blooded capacity to terminate the apneas, and have failed autoresuscitation. So I want to suggest the idea that in the babies who are at risk for SIDS, they have a disproportionate Influence of respiratory and cardiovascular inhibitory reflexes, and an inadequate uh, um, or deficient uh, excitatory input to restore eupnea and maintain blood pressure uh, and heart rate. So apnea and br- uh, bradycardia represent the conservative fetal responses to hypoxia. They have their role in utero. I don't think they're great once you're air breathing. So. While in utero, respiratory activity is largely inhibited. The babies have to practice. They only practice, oddly enough, in active sleep. That's so weird, because when we're in REM sleep, motor activity is inhibited, of course. Um, So hence, it looks to me like inhibitory uh, circuits develop early and are strong, and there's a broad range of uh, neurophysiological data that suggests throughout the brain during development that the inhibitory um, uh, circuits develop first. And then there's delayed development, and for that reason, this likely affects primarily the excitatory circuits, delays the development of these respiratory circuits needed to sustain respiratory activity in an aerial environment. This delays the stabilizing effect of this uh, excitatory input on eupnea. And as a consequence, we see evidence of insufficient robustness in these excitatory circuits. There's deficient arousal, perhaps deficient autoresuscitation, and the stability of eupnea is deficient. And you see this in babies who are premature and have apnea of prematurity. And the treatment of that can involve uh, things that provide greater uh, stability to the respiratory circuit that will regularize the breathing but that in the premature infant are not fully developed. So this is our animal model. This is the laryngeal chemoreflex. This is taken from a piglet. We introduced a small amount of water into the larynx. Uh, the animal tries to clear that. There's swallowing. This is the tongue muscle. Here's the diaphragm. There's respiratory activity. There's some coughing going on. But then there's a long apnea. OK. Uh, there's also an arousal associated with the pig woke up. We did this during sleep. And um, then and promptly recovered and restored more regular activity. We're going to be using this reflex over and over in different circumstances. We're going to put water in the animal, and then we're going to do various things in the brainstem to try to understand how those factors in the brainstem affect the duration of the laryngeal chemoreflex. Anything that prolongs the laryngeal chemoreflex, we're going to call that bad. Anything that shortens it, we're going to call that good. We do the same thing now in rat pups. Um, We've moved largely to rat pups. This is a recording from a rat pup. Here again, water was introduced, prolonged apnea. Regular respiration was not restored till about this point. And most of our research is done now in neonatal rat pups between postnatal day 4 and 21. Once you start studying rats, you become a rat doctor and you become, you know, if you're interested in neuroscience, you become a rat doctor, a rat psychiatrist. You know, in the water maze, are they really forgetting or are they just bored? Maybe they don't like to swim, you know? You're Group, what we fight about is what age does a, a P4 rat pup represent? And there's no consensus because if you look at different organs, you get different ideas. If you look at brain development, what I said here is approximately true. It really, the, the, um, The uh, rat pups are altricial, meaning they're born very immature, and so between P1 and P7, their eyes aren't open, they can't thermoregulate. It really looks like the rat pups are born at the end of the second trimester in a human, and the first seven days kind of represent completion of what would have been intrauterine development in um, a human. And then P7 to P5, it looks like an infinite. And so if we're going to worry about a vulnerable period, we're going to focus on this period. And I, and I must say that a lot of people have found respiratory abnormalities that seem particularly prominent in this period. We argue about whether it's P7 or P9. I, I think it's the whole week, but, um, or, or spans the spectrum. But there is some evidence to support the idea that this is a particularly vulnerable period. And then P16 to P21 is childhood to early adolescence, at least in terms of brain development. So much of our work is going to be focused on this age range. So here's the laryngeal chemoreflex reflex in the NTS. This is meant to represent the NTS. There are C fibers, which are unmyelinated, A fibers, which are myelinated. And both of these fibers come from the larynx through the superior laryngeal nerve. And when activated, they release glutamate, And they activate second-order neurons in the NTS, and those second-order neurons communicate with the ventral respiratory group, which is what controls the pattern of breathing. And when activated, these neurons suspend respiration in this early phase called post-inspiration. And then, because we all have to worry about job security, we need a fancy word, and so it's called post-inspiratory apnosis which is meant to imply that we get stuck in that phase. It's as if respiration can't move from this post-inspiratory phase into expiration to get to the next inspiration and begin that cyclic process again. And these neurons seem to suspend the process in this post-inspiratory phase. So these are apnogenic second-order neurons. And both A and C fibers are in the uh, superior... They both contribute to... um, to uh, the... Reflex apnea. Uh, we have been focused particularly on the C fibers. C fibers are generally quiet. These are usually pain fibers or pain-like fibers. They don't send much activity unless there's a life-threatening stimulus. So if you put acid in the larynx or you put uh, irritants in the larynx, I think that the C fibers are the ones that get active, and they are particularly effective at activating these uh second-order neurons. So our hypothesis is greater laryngeal stimulation or greater glutamate release, more profound apnea and respiratory inhibition. So thermal stress is a risk factor for SIDS, so we tested that in some piglets. We elevated their body temperature and asked what happens to the laryngeal chemoreflex. So here's the laryngeal chemoreflex duration, and here is the control setting. We elevated the body temperature and the laryngeal chemoreflex got much, much longer. We elevated the body temperature about 2 degrees C. When we returned the body temperature back to its normal value, the laryngeal chemoreflex was no longer uh, prolonged. So elevated body temperature prolongs the LCR. Maybe this is how heat stress works. It's actually sensitizing the LCR, enhancing the propensity for reflex apnea. So how does a body sense temperature? It turns out that trip v one channels, those are transient receptor vanilloid 1 receptors, uh, are temperature sensitive, and you know this because the, the main agonist for this that you know is capsaicin, which is in hot peppers. This is the receptor that makes hot food taste hot. Okay? Um, and, but it's a thermosensitive receptor, and it's got another, a, a number of other uh, effects. So we elevated the body temperature, got the laryngeal chemoreflex prolonged. We left the the body temperature high, this is hyperthermia, and then we put in an antagonist for the TRIP-V1 receptor, and now the LCR is no longer prolonged. So we concluded that the thermal prolongation of the LCR is actually mediated by the TRIP-V1 receptor. and uh, Thermal prolongation mediated, okay. So TRIP-V1 is promiscuous. It is a fascinating receptor. It's involved a lot in peripheral pain sensitization. Uh, and so there's a lot of interest in antagonizing trpv v one as a pain medicine uh, for people who have chronic inflammatory conditions in the periphery. I think the same phenomenon is going on in the uh, brainstem, in the crani- in these, uh, cranial nerve nuclei. Um, and I, so I, I, I think that to some extent you could say that when the LCR is sensitized, there is chemoreflex hyperalgesia in the same way that stimuli that are not painful Suddenly, can elicit pain or stimuli that usually wouldn't cause an apnea. Suddenly, cause a prolonged apnea. So, does trip V one transduce other signals? We were particularly interested in inflammation. So, here is indomethacin in the control state. Here's a little thermal prolongation, hyperthermia. Here, the LCR was prolonged. When we added interleukin one beta, there was dramatic prolongation. It really seemed to amplify this thermal effect. It could be blocked by indomethacin a Cox inhibitor, so it means that interleukin-1-beta is causing the synthesis of other things. It turns out it's probably IL-6 and then PGE-2, which interacts with the TRIP-V1 receptor. So interleukin-1-beta amplified the thermal prolongation of the LCR based on peripheral pain mechanisms. It's likely to be mediated by TRIP-V1 receptors. So now the diagram begins to look like this, and I've put in some of the risk factors. Inflammation, a recent URI, those are known risk factors for SIDS. So here's a putative mechanism whereby PG2 and phosphorylation of trp one which sensitizes it, may contribute to an enhanced sensitivity to apnogenic reflexes. And there are a number of papers describing how upper airway inflammatory cytokines are transmitted into the brainstem actually through the superior laryngeal nerve. There's a very clear association between apnea propensity and RSV infection, for example. So um, I'd like to propose that one of the susceptibilities, one of the things about infants who are at risk for SIDS is that perhaps they have this sensitization of the uh, TRIP-V1 mechanism and this reflex apnea. So not all the news is bad. Um, ACEA is a cannabinoid receptor agonist, and uh, it turns out to shorten the LCR. If we put ACE into the NTS, microinjections, then elicit the LCR, the, apnea pro, the uh, LCR duration is dramatically reduced. Uh, CB1 receptors are presynaptic on C-fiber afferents. We already know that. So now the diagram looks like this. There are v one receptors on the afferents. There are CB1 receptors here. And if you increase CB1 activity, you decrease synaptic calcium, decrease glutamate release. If you, on the other hand, if you increase TRPV1, you increase calcium and glutamate release. And so these are antagonists. These are um, uh, mechanisms whereby the apnea propensity can be regulated. And so I think that cannabinoid receptors are a therapeutic agent, a potential therapeutic agent. And before you all start snickering... Um, I want to tell you two stories, one just for fun and the other with some scientific importance. I was in Colorado when uh, marijuana was legalized and it was really, really interesting because it was legal to smoke but there was no etiquette and you weren't allowed to do it in public. So even on January 1, you know, people were still running into the woods and coming out giggling. It hadn't changed anything, okay? I think over time Colorado has evolved an etiquette and we should look at that when other states uh, modify it. But the other more interesting thing is that people who took marijuana for medicinal purposes were very concerned about the legalization of marijuana. And the reason is they like a different kind of marijuana and it doesn't get you high. I think it has more CB1 agonists in it, which is involved in pain manipulation, and less of the CB2 agonists. And I think they are telling you that, you know, it's not all about getting high, that you can separate these two phenomena to some extent. And drug companies are trying to do this with uh, cannabidiol and dronabinol and other uh, congeners that are meant to have a CB1 or a CB2 prominence. So I, I don't think it's entirely ridiculous to think that at some point we might be treating babies with CB1 agonists without getting them high. Okay, another little bit of good news that uh, I mention uh, uh, because of uh, its prominence in uh, the brainstem. There's a lot of adenosine, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brains of baby. It's thought to be neuroprotective. It inhibits glutamatergic activity and activates GABAergic activity, which tends to decrease the metabolism of the brain, decrease the activity of the brain, and protect it when oxygen is inadequate. So we looked at the effect of uh, adenosine A2A agonists on the um, laryngeal chemoreflex. Here's our hyperthermic stimulus. Here's, uh, let's see, I should turn to this one, sorry. Here's our hyperthermic stimulus. Here's an A2A agonist in the absence of hyperthermia, and it prolongs the laryngeal chemoreflex, even though body temperature is not elevated. So activation of these adenosine A2A agonists Uh, seems to enhance the LCR as well. Therefore, caffeine, which blocks those receptors, uh, is also a potential therapeutic agent. And, of course, caffeine has the great advantage that it's already approved for use in infants. So um, that's another potential therapeutic uh, agent that comes out of this research. So I'm showing you this for... um, to make actually what's not the main point of the slide. This shows the effect of prenatal smoke exposure in rats, and mothers on the uh, rat pups when they're born, and this is the ratio of the LCR between hyperthermic conditions and normothermic conditions, and prenatal smoke exposure sensitizes the LCR um, and so that the thermal prolongation is much longer, the black dots, in the babies who were exposed to cigarette smoke in utero. So here's another you know, risk factor that seems to be working through enhancing the um, apnogenic potency of these reflexes. But the other thing I want to point out is that over time, this difference went away. Babies outgrow the risk of SIDS, these rat pups outgrow the risk of SIDS. So I think there may be brain immaturity when they're born, but they tend to catch up over time. Okay, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. So maternal smoke may enhance inhibition through GABAergic mechanisms. There's a good deal of evidence for this in other areas of the brain as well and it may decrease uterine blood flow and cause intrauterine hypoxia. So here's this idea that hypoxia delays delays, um, development, and perhaps this prolongation of the LCR is a manifestation of sensitization of the apnogenic reflex, but also persistence of more fetal-like responses to hypoxia and stress. Smoking probably causes this. Let's see. Brain immaturity associated with persistent fetal reflex responses, but note the rat, rat pups outgrew it. And that's the main reason I just want to show you that, because the outgrowing phenomenon is going to come up. So it looks to me as if many risk factors for SIDS operate through presynaptic mechanisms in the NTS to enhance apnea. And this makes some sense to me. The reflex apnea is an integrate and fire reflex. You integrate a lot of information, but once you reach a threshold, you induce apnea. And it has to be like that. You can't kind of have a little bit of apnea or not. It's either present or not. And I think the presence of apnea inhibits eupnea They are mutually exclusive. And once a gun is fired, you can't do much to the bullet, okay? Once the apnea is precipitated, you can't make it any stronger. It's kind of committed. The only thing you can do is try to terminate it, and the best defense is not to activate the apnea of all. I think that's part of what's happening in a safe sleeping environment. And if we could enhance maturation in some way, we might also prevent it from happening. Or you have to have a very powerful mechanism to terminate apneas, and that's what I want to turn to next. This is serotonin and apnea termination. These are autoradiographs. You put a radio-labeled agonist for a serotonin receptor in the brainstem. This is a 5-HT1A agonist. And you can see there's very little uh, binding here, whereas here's the normal baby or the baby who died of another cause. And you can see there's extensive receptor density in this region of the nucleus tractus solitarius in the dorsal brainstem. So the babies who die of SIDS, seem to have a deficiency of receptors. I told you also that they seem to have a more immature neuronal phenotype. Generally thought that serotonergic function is deficient in babies who died of SIDS. And babies who died of asphyxia, I want to keep reminding you of that. So we looked at the effect of 5-HT, serotonin injected into the brainstem, and asked what effect does it have on the duration of the laryngeal chemoreflex. So the important slide's right here, in the lower right. Here is the laryngeal chemoreflex in the control state, we injected 5-HT into the brainstem in the NTS, Nucleus Salter, and the, the uh, uh, LCR duration was dramatically shortened. In control conditions, we saw no such shortening. If you put saline in or artificial ACSF, it does not have any effect um, on the duration of the LCR. So reduced 5-HT receptor binding is the key abnormality that's been described. So naturally, we thought, oh, well, this has to be due to some change in 5-HT1A. But neither agonist nor antagonist of 5-HT1-ray had any effect on the LCR. The really, really common receptor is 5-HT2, and it's got a family of five, but it's 5-H2TA is the most common one. And so we tried a very broad-spectrum 5-HT2 receptor antagonist, and it had no effect on the LCR. So we were scratching our heads at this point. But the NTS has the highest density of 5-HT3 receptors in the brain, and 5-HT3 receptors have not received any attention in SIDS to date. It's widely expressed presynaptically on vagal afferents entering the NTS, including SLN fibers that are involved in precipitating the NTS. By its location, it looks like maybe it's a good candidate. I've already emphasized the rule of presynaptic regulation. Here's a presynaptic serotonergic receptor. So we used CPG, which is a specific agonist for 5-HT3, and it replicated the effect of the 5-HTs. CPG injected focally into the NTS, dramatically shortened the LCR. Great. Where's the serotonin coming from? Here we used AMPA, which is a glutamate antagonist. Virtually every neuron expresses glutamate, so if you put glutamate in the brainstem, it'll activate those neurons, and then you can see what they do. We injected... uh, AMPA into the caudal raffae, which is where a lot of serotonergic neurons are, and it's known that those neurons project to the NTS. So when we put AMPA in the caudal raffae, we actually shortened the LCR. So then the question is, is this due to serotonin, and is it due to 5-HT3 receptor uh, activation? So then we took ondansetron, which you may know as an anti-emetic agent. 5-HT3 is very much involved in the chemotoxic uh, trigger zone, which, for those of you who are really old, is what Herb Borison studied, if anybody remembers him. Um, another Dartmouth connection. Uh, but the, their, their 5-HT3 receptors are richly innervated throughout the, the NTS. It's involved in uh, the somatic response, but it's also involved, as I've shown you, in regulating uh, the LCR. So if we put endositron on, then AMPA in the caudal ref A no longer shortens the LCR. So let's update the schematic. IT LOOKS TO ME LIKE 5HT3 IS SHORTENING THE LCR THEREFORE IT HAS TO INHIBIT THESE NEURONS SO WE PUT 5HT3 RECEPTORS PRESYNAPTICALLY ON C FIBERS THAT INNERVATE GABAERGIC NEURONS WHICH THEN INHIBIT THAT THIS is TOTALLY MADE UP I DON'T KNOW THAT THIS IS TRUE OKAY Uh, THERE ARE MANY MANY GABAERGIC INTERNEURONS BUT I DON'T KNOW THAT THEIR CONNECTIONS ARE ORGANIZED IN EXACTLY THIS WAY Uh, 5HT3 LIKELY ENHANCES PRESYNAPTIC CALCIUM then increases glutamate release, so we've got to translate this glutamate release into something that inhibits this. And it likely then terminates the LCR by turning these neurons off. It makes sense that these neurons would have some regulatory process, so I think this is plausible and fits the data, but it is speculative. So then, let's put the RAFA in, so the caudal RAFA is back here and meant to be down. It sends serotonin when activated, activates these 5-HT3 receptors, and turns that off. So, reduced serotonin is a risk factor SIDS. We believe that serotonin should come from the caudal refae, and this is where one of the sites that's abnormal, if you look pathologically. And it's phenotypically immature, and babies at risk for SIDS are unable to fully activate this GABAergic neurons that could terminate apneas. At least, that's my working hypothesis. So, has the focus on 5-HT been a mistake? True, true, but unrelated? I really don't know the answer to that. Um, there's no f- information about 5-HT3 receptor density in babies who died of SIDS. But now, physiologists, us, we're suggesting to our pathology friends that shouldn't we be looking at this, and that, in fact, is going on uh, right now at uh, Children's Hospital, Hannah Kinney, and her associates are looking at the density of 5-HT3 receptor babies. Maybe we'll have an answer, and maybe we'll have a distribution there. Um, Serotonin is involved not only in apnea termination, but also in restarting uh, a a eupnea. And this is a diagram of the mechanisms of arousal. And for years there have been papers about the stereotypical arousal responses. They seem to begin in the brainstem and are sent rostrally. So you get subcortical arousal, then cortical arousal, and it's this kind of stereotypical a uh, pattern of uh, reflex responses ultimately ending in EEG arousal, awakening, and establishing a more regular respiratory pattern. And the circuitry is now emerging. And what I want to show you is that I think serotonin is prominently involved. So here, caudal raphae neurons, they terminate the apnea through 5-HT3 receptors. They stimulate breathing. There is evidence that projections from the caudal refae to the ventral respiratory group activate the ventral respiratory group through 5-HT2 and 5-HT4 receptors. And they initiate arousal through the uh, parabrachial nucleus, which projects to the basal forebrain and the cortex and seems to be important in this arousal process. And they amplify the arousing effect of hypercapnia. Hypercapnia is an incredibly potent arousing stimulus. In the absence of serotonin it's not as powerful so something about serotonin probably in the region of the parabrachial nucleus seems to amplify this so the process of ending an apnea looks to me like you have to terminate the apnea you can't have apnea and eupnea at the same time you got to get the apnea out of the way then you have to stimulate breathing and then you have to initiate this arousal process and get a change in state to reach an awaking state or something more aroused that is associated with greater respiratory stability. And in the process, serotonin seems also to enhance this arousing stimulus. So note the centrality of serotonin. The other thing that I think is interesting is that we're starting to differentiate. We're naming the nuclei. We know that they are different receptors. It's serotonin, but it's becoming much more detailed in its architecture. So this is an example of a study of serotonin and its role in auto-resuscitation. These babies were treated at birth with 5,7-DHT, which is a serotonergic neuron toxin. So they develop normally, but once they were born, the serotonergic neurons were killed. And we look at their success or failure in auto-resuscitation. So here's hypoxia. The babies have a brief respiratory stimulation. These are rat pups. And then they have apnea, and then they either recover or they don't. And if you look... After the number of episodes of auto resuscitation, the neonatal rat pups with less serotonin recovered less effectively. So the loss of serotonergic neurons in the caudal refae also reduces the success of autoresuscitation. resuscitation. So I think the process is actually restoration of cardiovascular function. We saw the heart rate come up in those recordings from Dottie Kelly, an improved oxygenation. You have to terminate the apnea. You have to restore eupnea. AND THAT INVOLVES A STEP OF AUTO-RESUSCITATION IN HERE, AND THEN YOU HAVE RESTORATION OF eupnea AND THEN AROUSAL. SO I SEE AUTO-RESUSCITATION AS THE BEGINNING OF A PROCESS THAT ULTIMATELY LEADS TO um, AROUSAL. AND I HAVE NO IDEA IF THAT'S MEDIATED BY 5-HT3 RECEPTORS OR NOT. SO uh, WHAT ABOUT PREMATURITY? WE LOOKED AT THE EFFECTS OF intrauterine HYPOXIA, AND I'M GOING TO um, GO THROUGH THIS RATHER QUICKLY SO WE END ON TIME. The babies who were exposed to intrauterine hypoxia, these are rat pups, were a little bit delicate. They did not seem as robust. They were, it didn't take much to anesthetize them. Very small stimulus volumes in the younger animals sufficed to, uh, to elicit the LCR. And um, here is the response in terms of the LCR. Here's the apnea duration the LCR. Here is the normal apnea in the animals raised in room air. Here's the animals raised in hypoxia. When we injected, serotonin in the NTS, the babies raised in the hypoxic environment had no response, whereas the babies raised in the room environment had a response. So it really looks as if intrauterine hypoxia blocked the beneficial effect to shorten the LCR, you know, which we're beginning really to model what we think is happening in the babies who died of SIDS. So now we have a, a connection between intrauterine events and risk factors for SIDS in the presence of reduced serotonergic effectiveness. So I predicted uh, the 5-HT3 receptors would be decreased. That was completely wrong. Here are the control animals. Here's the density in the 5-HT. You can see the 5-HT3 receptors are very dense in the NTS. This is uh, autoradiography again. There was no difference in the control and hypoxia. I was very disappointed by this. Um, So whatever reduction in serotonergic effectiveness seems to act beyond the 5-HT3 receptors. I have to tell you one caveat. These animals tended to be older. I've shown you that the risk for serotonin diminishes as animals age, as they outgrow it. So we have another data set looking at 5-HT3 receptor density in younger animals. And once that's in, if it shows no effect, then there's no effect, because no matter what I think, the animals don't lie. We're, we're stuck with what they do. So it seems to make, hypoxia seems to make them more susceptible to respiratory inhibition. It seems that less stimulus needed to produce apnea in younger neonates. Uh, and the rescue effect of 5-HT is absence, and respiratory activity in these animals seem generally less stable. Hypoxia seems to delay maturation of the brain in these animals, just as Richard Nay suggests, and me, in my view, it allows these persistent apneogenic, these persistent fetal-like responses to persist. So in our scheme, SIDS is due to both apnea enhancement and autoresuscitation and arousal ineffectiveness. You have to have some combination of both those. And intrauterine hypoxia looks like really a double whammy, it seemed to sensitize the LCR in that smaller doses of water in the larynx were effective in eliciting really profound uh, apneas, but also the ser- beneficial effects, effect of serotonin seemed to be absent. So here's my model of the risk factors. We have increased temperature, inflammation, recent URI, fever, intrauterine hypoxia, smoking, prematurity. All seeming to modify these presynaptic receptors and their function um, in the NTS, and modify the propensity of apneas to develop, the intensity of those apneas, and then we have deficient we have hypoxia and deficient 5HT, and they seem to decrease cardiorespiratory excitation, arousal, and apnea termination. And prematurity, low socioeconomic status, also risk factors for SIDS, uh, may act in the NTS or through serotonergic mechanisms as well. So why did I say beyond the trispo risk hypothesis? I really want to pay homage to Jim, Filiano, and Hannah because this model has been extraordinarily useful in in, in organizing our thinking um, and, and our experiments. But I think we've moved beyond this because... We have specific nuclei involved. We have specific receptors, specific mechanisms and functions, and specific molecular targets for specific risk factors. So we've moved beyond this descriptive level of understanding to name names, NTS, parabrachial nucleus, caudal raphae, and develop mechanistic hypotheses, 5-HT3 receptors, 5-HT2, 5-HT4, TRPV1, cannabinoid receptors. I think we've have a more coherent idea about how uh, sudden infant death syndrome comes about, and that gives me hope that we can intervene more successfully in the future. And that's it. Any questions? Yes, Charlene. Uh,
0: So is there any evidence that children are predisposed genetically? And it sounds like there's this intrauterine occurrence that... uh, affects serotonin receptor production, which I find fascinating, um, but I'm wondering if there's any genomics that have been done to find out if there are kids who are predisposed to other, because not every mom that smokes, because there's a lot of them, have babies that are, that doesn't seem to be,
1: right, and, and I think that, let me ask the last, answer the last part first, I think that the triple model meant to bring that, that you have to have multiple factors coming together, smoking alone is not enough but smoking in combination with these other things I think smoking creates a vulnerable infinite and then at a particular age in a particular environment that all adds up to a, a bad outcome. Um, there are a subset of babies who die of SIDS who have genetic abnormalities. Um, if I mention a number we can fight about it and we, w- and, and we have I think it's probably two to four percent of the babies have genetic abnormalities it's, it's probably something like that. It looks to me much more that the majority of babies have an acquired mm-hmm. defect from an intrauterine environment that is deficient in some way. And I, I, would, I would categorize it as a nutritive deficiency, and I'd include oxygen as a nutritive agent there. It may be other nutritional elements as well, but, but oxygen features prominently. Okay, so no,
0: no, like no uh, serotonin receptor defects in, genetically
1: that have been discovered? There is a serotonin reuptake. Uh, polymorphism that some people think is important. Um, it's in a very small subset of patients, uh, probably more in um, African-Americans, possibly Japanese populations, but it's, it's not widely represented and people haven't always been able to replicate that finding. It like one
0: quick last question because we're, we're over time.
1: Just, um, the work that Brad has done of looking at CO2 rebreathing and lack of response to this, how do you integrate that into your theories? Okay, I have a really clear and blunt answer for you that you may not like. I think he's completely wrong. <laughs> CO2 is an arousing stimulus, and there is no consistent evidence that babies who die of SIDS have a reduced response to CO2. Okay. But what I showed you is that serotonin amplifies the arousing response to CO2. So I think that serotonin may modify the responses to CO2, the presence or absence of it, but that the CO2 sensitivity itself, I don't see it playing a large role. It's a respiratory stimulus, whereas hypoxia is a potent respiratory inhibitor in in the fetus and in in an immature animal. So I, I, I don't agree with Brad about that. I
0: want to, thank, I want to okay. thank Dr. Leiter. He he comes back regularly, or every ten years, to remind some of us, who aren't in this row, the important role that Arkansas have had in the in the understanding the prevention of SIDS. And I I I imagine Steve Ringer may invite him for next Wednesday to engage in some of these conversations with the oncologists who join Bill and George. Have a great a great panel.